You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day, and we're thankful for how you have fed us already with the preaching of your word and and the gift of your sacrament, Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves, that you give us physical means that remind us and draw us into your grace, and that, Lord, you give us an opportunity like this, in this kind of class setting, to think out loud um, over the pages of your of your word. And I pray that you will let this book, 2 Corinthians, uh, do its work in our hearts and our minds. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so, um, second, I, I love doing this, by the way, right? You know, I, I you, you know this. I, I teach the um, the Old Testament for a living. I mean, that's how I that's how I pay the mortgage, um, and it's and it's only it's only here. Hi, Miss Mary. It's only uh, it's only here where you know at the church where they let me come sort of fiddle with the New Testament. So I'm I'm great I'm grateful to do that. It's like like you can play with Moses, but Jesus anyway. Um, <laughs> And that's not true, but uh, so we. I, I want to do. I, th- I thought through, um, you know, what book would sort of fit within the Advent season, um, and I was. I've been doing some sort of reading and thinking about Second Corinthians for another project that I'm involved in, and, and it, it just dawned on me if there, if there is a if there is an Adventy epistle from the Apostle Paul, it is most certainly Second um, Corinthians. And let me today is going to be a kind of orientation day to the book as a whole. Um, any of, just out of curiosity, any of you in here done uh, a, maybe a small group Bible study on Second Corinthians? Have you spent time in this book? I think it's one that's have you. Um, I think it's one that often gets overlooked. Um, you know, within Pauline scholarship, there's there's a term that's bandied about called Paul's uh, chief letters, his his most significant or hefty theological letters. Um, and those four letters are Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians. I mean, those tend to be sort of central to wrestling and thinking through the dynamics of Paul's thought and theology. And I would say of those three, Romans, First Corinthians, I mean, of those four, Romans, First, the Corinthians, and, and Galatians, Second Corinthians probably gets the shortest shrift, I would imagine. Um, and actually, Second Corinthians is pretty unique, I think, within the Pauline literature because... This is the place where we actually find Paul most autobiographical. Um, it's also the place where we find Paul to be the most personal in, in, in ways that, frankly, as I've read this letter again, actually several times in preparation for today, uh, in, in ways that are a little bit unnerving, actually. Um, the ways in which Paul can be that vulnerable with this with this church on um, on, on, on in ancient Greece actually about about the character of his ministry and the fact that Paul's been pushed into a corner to defend his apostolicity. I mean, how is Paul really a genuine apostle, and how does he prove that? What, what's what's on Paul's resume um, for him to provide a kind of argument? Uh, for his for his apostolic status, and you find Paul forced into a very uncomfortable position as he begins to defend himself in his own apostolic ministry and legacy. So this is a, this is a unique letter. I don't know if you've thought about this before, um, because we're we we at least feel 
familiar with Paul's biography. I mean, we know something about this from the book of Acts. I mean, Paul um, was an initial persecutor of Christians who then had this incredible, think about Caravaggio's famous painting, you know, with, with Paul knocked off a horse on his back on the way to Damascus, and he's converted in this incredible encounter with the risen Lord. He tells us in very cryptic ways in the book of Galatians that he went to seminary I mean, my poor students, they're stuck with someone like me. Paul goes out to the desert for three years with Jesus. Um, and he tells us that that's where he went for his theological training. That's pretty remarkable, actually. Um, so he, he goes to seminary with Jesus in the desert, and then he comes out of that, and then he t- takes his ministry to the sort of the Gentile world. We know something about Paul's biography because we've read the book of Acts. What's fascinating, I find, when you read Paul's own writings... Books like Romans or Colossians or Ephesians. What's fascinating here is Paul's reticence to refer to himself and his own personal resume. In fact, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this. I think it's remarkable. I don't think there's anywhere in any of the Pauline letters, except for maybe a kind of soft reference to it in the beginning of Galatians, but I don't even think there we don't find any reference in Paul's letters where Paul gives a first-hand account of his own conversion. He talks about coming into his apostolic ministry late, later than the other apostles, but never does Paul give an account personally of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. There's a kind of personal modesty, I think, that we find in Paul's ministry where Paul is given singularly um, to his call to gospel ministry. Paul is a church planter. His role and identity is in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's a term that Paul uses to predicate on himself that he does from beginning to end of his whole apostolic ministry, it's this, I, Paul, am a servant of Jesus Christ. In one of our Sundays together, I'm going to give our whole time uh, to wrestling with what Paul means by describing himself as a servant, and we'll let now, the book of Isaiah shaped for us what Paul means, I think, by his servant status as, as one who, who follows the Lord. But the point is, Paul, and I've been thinking about this a little bit sort of personally in, in, in the past few months, Paul has a singularity of vision and purpose that drives the entirety of his existence. Um, that's actually a kind of remarkable personal and vocational feature. I've actually found myself recently asking the Lord for that kind of gift. I mean, think about how distracted we are by so many things. And necessarily so. I'm not going to get sort of pie in the sky with you this morning. Necessarily so. You know, someone was just, Billy and Millie were asking me this morning about our kids, you know, 14 to 4. I mean, it's like, you know, hairs falling out left and right, you know, just in keeping up with them. Um, it's just the nature, it's the nature of, of a certain kind of earthly existence that we can't transcend, nor are we supposed to transcend. But even in the midst of all of that, Paul had the busyness of life as well. And yet there was this kind of singularity of vision and purpose. Paul understood what his life was given to. And that shaped and framed Paul's existence from beginning to end, both in the extent of his life and the measure of his individual days. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's singularity of vision drove um, his apostolic ministry from beginning to end, and he wasn't all that interested in referring to himself in the, pro- in, in the, in the process. And he wasn't all that interested in, in sort of uh, pulling out 
um, his own credentials to let you know why, why he should be believed. Paul only does that in 2 Corinthians because he believes that the gospel is at stake. It's the gospel that drives Paul to self-referentiality, and we'll see him do that here in ways that really make both him embarrassed and I think those who are forced to read it a little bit red in the cheeks as well. So 2 Corinthians is a unique letter. Um, if I can give you an analogy of this, um, in, the, in the writings of John Calvin uh, from the 16th century, we have very little autobiographical references from Calvin himself. I mean, this is an interesting feature from, from Calvin. Calvin doesn't like to talk about himself either. If you'll remember, when John Calvin died, he said that he didn't want his grave to have any marker on it because he didn't want to become a kind of uh, pilgrimage uh, location. He, he said, just toss me in a grave and cover me over, and then the Lord will figure out at the second coming. It's kind of a nice nice approach here. Um, and, uh, and, and yet, there are a few places. I mean, Paul, uh, uh, Calvin tells us about himself in the preface to his commentary on the Psalms. Calvin tells us a little about, bit about himself in his commentary to the Romans. But other than that, you kind of have to hunt and search to find out autobiographical references to Calvin. Now, this is this, is this place for us with the Apostle Paul here in Second uh, in Corinthians. Okay, So let, let me say a few things about the book in Toto. We'll see if we have any time for questions at the end, but probably not. Um, so, let, so let me say something here about, about the book in its, enti- in its entirety. Uh, I, I have a, this is to scale, uh, and this is, um, there's a copyright on the map that I'm about to draw you. Um, so here, uh, this, is, this is so bad. Uh, um, that's the Middle East, can you tell? <laughs> right? So that's, that's the Nile River. Here, here's Sinai. Um, that's that's uh, ancient Israel. Here's the Dead Sea. This is to scale. Um, Cy- Cyprus is kind of in here somewhere. Um, this, this up here is, is Turkey, Asia Minor, and then you have this, this area here, the sea, and then uh, there's, there's the ancient, um, ancient Macedonia. We think of it as Greece. Here's Athens right here. Corinth is right here. All right, let's kind of give you a sense of where Corinth is. Corinth is a, um, and, and if you don't believe me, you can look in your maps in the back of your Bible. I mean, it's, this, it's much better than that. But I, I, there's a certain charm and appeal to that that I, I like. Um, this this is where this is where Paul, um, in his movement from Jerusalem, you think about the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. They gave a directive to Paul. Paul is Paul is a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, God propels really out of schism. And out of a fracture uh, within Paul's own ministry to the Jews, uh, God compels and drives Paul outside of that ministry to the Jews in the synagogues to uh, to a Gentile-speaking world. And Corinth was one of these places where Paul Paul ministered. If you want to read about this, um, you can find this in Acts chapter 18. Um, there, Paul describes Paul the, or Luke describes for us Paul's ministry to um, to Corinth, and. Um, it's worth sort of looking at this for a second if you have Bibles here. I wanted to read this last bit to you because this is rather fascinating. Uh, this is Acts chapter 18. Um, Paul left Athens and then he went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila. So you know about these two, Aquila and Priscilla. He found a Jew named Aquila and, and recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Um, they were there because they actually had been expelled out of Rome. It's kind of an early um, um, sort of anti-Semitic move there in Rome. 
He went to see them, and to make a long story short, he ends up setting up a church or preaching the gospel there within Corinth. And if you'll see this last verse that's describing this in verse 11, he says, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Uh, a year a year and six months, that's, that's, not, um, that's not a short amount of time, actually, if you think about it, especially given the kind of ministry that Paul tends to have as an itinerant gospel minister. A year and six months is a long time. And I think this is part of the back explanation or background explanation for why Paul bleeds the way in which he does on the pages of 2 Corinthians. He'll talk about a painful letter. Um, he will tell them about his first visit to them. And he'll reflect on his first visit. And then he'll tell us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that he was planning to take a second trip to visit them there in, in, in Macedonia, in, in Corinth. And he doesn't do it because, if I can just kind of put it in, in our, our translation, because it was going to be too awkward. Um, it would have been too difficult to see them face to face because he wrote them a letter presumably 1 Corinthians, although there's some debate about this, but he wrote them a letter, and the letter that he wrote them caused such disruption in their community and really animosity against Paul that word got back to him that they, they had been genuinely hurt by Paul's letter, and Paul avoided going back to them in a particular moment to avoid that kind of awkward encounter. And we see Paul describing this. It's remarkable. There's no bravado here with Paul's apostolic authority. He doesn't beat his chest. He feels the kind of burden that he has as a minister of the gospel to these people and the fact that his own prophetic ministry and word has caused a level of pain in their midst. Now, he's going to tell us as the letter goes on that it was a necessary pain. It was the kind of ripping off of a band-aid that was, that was necessary, but nevertheless, it caused pain, and that hurt both the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. Um, the, the relationship is, is uh, tenuous at this particular moment. What was going on in the church at Corinth? Well, if you just read 1 Corinthians. I, I tell my students at Beeson, you know, because they're, um, and, and again, I don't mean to knock this, but there, there's because there's lovely people that are involved in these um, small home church movements, and I don't I don't mean to necessarily knock it, though I have some reservations. But, but a lot of that's going on, and if you and if you sort of press these folks into a corner, like so, so what's the what's the dealio here on um, on your, on the home church? A lot of it has to do with we we want to get back to the purity of the apostolic age. Have you ever had that conversation with somebody? We want to be like they really were in the first in the first century church when things were fresh and innovative and, and dynamic and and I oh, I don't I don't know how to process that. Um, because I, I whenever someone says that I immediately think of first Corinthians. I'm like, whatever golden apostolic age you think existed, there was never such a thing. I mean there were, the church has problems in it now, and the church has always had problems in it. Um, and if you look at 1 Corinthians, think about some of the issues that they were addressing there. They were addressing what we might consider to be an under, what, what some would call an under-realized eschatology. Well, what I mean by that is they didn't understand the significance that Jesus Christ had actually risen from the dead. You had other issues as well, like a, a man is sleeping presumably with, with, his, with his stepmother, that makes awkward church potluck gatherings, I think. Um, you had brothers who were taking each other to court, making a kind of public mockery of the church. I mean, all of this stuff is going on. And Paul, 
as their apostolic leader, as their spiritual father, is having to lean into this and to give them guidance on how to navigate the messiness of this early church life experience. And Paul had to get in the mess. There's there's no avoiding this. I, I think about this with my, my, my students, really, who can be idealistic at times about what life in the church is like. And you're like, listen, you're diving into the deep end of people's messiness. Um, you're, you're dealing with sheep, and it's always good to remember you're one of them. You're, you're, you will be part of the problem as you dive into this. Um, so here's Paul, uh, who's written this letter to them. He's a spiritual father to them, and now he's coming uh, to, to, uh, to write a second letter, a follow-up letter that's, um, that's meant, I think, to encourage them in this direction. So if there's a thesis to 2 Corinthians here, might be a thesis. 2 Corinthians is making an argument, or Paul is making a kind of theological argument, that the message of the gospel is a truth that must be proclaimed, and it's also a truth that must be embodied in the community of faith. I'll say it again. The message of the gospel is a truth that has to be proclaimed publicly. But the, and the public proclamation of the gospel is necessarily linked to communal practice itself within the life of the church. What, how the church lives in relation to itself and how the church lives in relationship to its prophetic presence in the world is organically related to what it means to be public proclaimers of the gospel. Um, this is a certain kind of feature, I think, of modern intellectual life, where we have separated, on, at least on some level, um, thought from embodied humanity. All right? What it means to kind of be a thinker, what it means to think. Um, I think, by the way, we might think in these terms... Oh, I, I was going to talk about sexual ethics, but I won't do that. Um, I, I, all to say, I think we have, we have very comfortably separated ideas and thought from bodily presence and the fact that we are embodied. And the Bible just won't let us do that. The Bible won't let us sort of abstract um, thought and theological life from what it means to live in concrete existence in the world and in the life of the church. And Paul is leaning pretty heavily into that, that particular dynamic. Okay. Um, with that said, let me give you a few features of the book of 2 Corinthians that will give you a kind of overall view. And then as we move on through our weeks, we'll dive in to some particularities. So here, here are a few... Uh, features and character traits of 2 Corinthians as, as a whole. Number one, number one, 2 Corinthians concerns the nature of Paul's apostolicity. What does it mean for Paul uh, to be an apostle? What are the marks of genuine um, apostolic status uh, and authority? And how does Paul demonstrate this? We might as well just lay this out on the front end. Paul demonstrates his own apostolic authority by an appeal to his suffering. Now that's a, that's an interesting feature um, because it's not necessarily the ways I think in which we would think about one establishing um, their credentials for public leadership. We're thinking in terms of leadership here and spiritual leadership. What's the kind of leader um, that the church needs and desires? What's the kind of church, leader that, that uh, we hope steps into positions of leadership in the life of the church if we're drawing from cultural sensibilities on what genuine leadership is like, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians is going to lean pretty hard against that. Where's genuine leadership to be found? Paul's going to say, true leadership is found in the fact that I've been willing 
and I've entered into a shared suffering with the risen Lord Himself. Um, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, and we'll get there in due course, but when we turn to those chapters, um, the Apostle Paul defends his apostolic authority by, by, if I can put it this way, by dropping the back of his toga or his robe and showing you the scars on his back. That's how he does it. He says, I want you to know I've, I've suffered with Jesus and I've suffered for Jesus. And that's, that's a mark of my apostolic authority. Now, he'll tell you about his other, his other strengths as well. But when it comes down to it, Paul's apostolic authority is marked by his, by his suffering. I read a book years ago, and I, I recommend it to my students, um, by Dan Allender entitled um, Leading with a Limp. Um, it's, it's a good book, and it's a book that speaks about the character of leadership within the life of the church and within the life of God's people and the ways in which the Bible presents it. And I think this is basically the thesis that Allender is presenting in that book. Um, we might like flashy... CEO, effervescent style leaders. And that's fine. This isn't a matter of personality. That, that's fine. But I think what Allender is trying to show and what Paul demonstrates here as well is that the kind of leader that God tends to like are those that are reluctant for the task. In other words, who recognize that the task is bigger than them. And because the task is bigger than them, they find themselves in positions of dependency on the wisdom of God and others in ways that demand a certain kind of humility in the role of leadership. It's demanded. And, and it's a pattern that you find just from beginning to end. You, can't any, you just open the Bible and put your finger anywhere. And you find that particular pattern of leadership that's demonstrated. Moses, I want you to go to, to, uh, to Pharaoh. And this is what you're going to say. What is Mo, how, what's Moses' response? I'm not a good public communicator. I'm not good at this. And then God says, well, too bad, you're going, right? Um, and then you get into the book of Judges and you find someone like Gideon and Gideon says, I'm not going to go fight the, you know, the, the Moabites. I'm not going to do this. And, and then what does, what does God say? Well, um, your army's too big. I'm going to whittle this down to 300 and now you're, you're going to go get them because I want, I want you to know, um, that, that that's, that's how I get to demonstrate my power. Um, this is again a very apostolic dynamic that we find in Paul's writings from beginning to end. God loves to show off the strength of His saving power through the weakness of the leaders that He chooses in the life of His church. Because God gets to flex His muscles and His leaders get to point a finger away from themselves to Him. He's the one who's the true shepherd. He's the one who's the real prophet. He's the one who's the real king. We're not amassing any of this for ourselves. We're doing this in service of our true king and our true prophet. Karl Barth, in his little book, Evangelical Theology, which I think we sell in our bookstore, famously said in that book, and it's one of my favorite turns of phrases in that, in that whole book, Barth says, we might have great doctors, and we might have great statesmen, and we may have great lawyers in society, but you can only have little theologians. You can only have little pastors. Why? Because we recognize the enormity of the task, and you recognize as well our inability to live up into it. That's, that's a genuine kind of humility. It's not self-effacing. Um, it's not a kind of constant put-down. Genuine humility, I think, from an apostolic standpoint is what? A genuine recognition of who we are in light of the glory and grandeur of who He is. What, what, other, what other place do you have? 
than to be in a place of complete dependence on his power and his authority and his and his governance. So Paul, in this book, is demonstrating um, his own um, apostolic credentials. What are some other features here? Well, I'm just going to toss these out to you. Paul, and we'll come to him in due course. Paul um, is concerned that the Corinthians know that they are underneath the territory of his own apostolic oversight. He'll talk about this in chapter 10. Paul is, is concerned about giving a true Christology. Who is Jesus Christ? And how does that pertain to the purity of the gospel? Paul is concerned for the Corinthians to live in light of the future. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, recognizing that this world is not their final stopping place, that they have a pilgrim existence living for another time and another place. And all of it from beginning to end is driven by Paul wanting to present this grand and beautiful picture of the character of God. Is God worth, uh, is God worthy of our worship and is he worthy of our trust? And Paul from beginning to end bases all of his argumentation on the character of Israel's God is revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Now, how's our time? Great! Can we turn to... Uh, I do want to look at a text before I let you go. And the text I want to look at with you today is, um, is chapter 1. I'm just going to read this and make some comments and then we'll, we'll call it a day. So here's how Paul begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother... To the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole region of Achaia. So this is the think about the Greek peninsula there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a standard feature of Paul's apostolic greeting. Grace to you, um, a recognition of God's initiative, saving initiative toward humanity, which is the only way in which peace can actually come about in any real and tangible way. Grace leads to peace. And when you think peace, think Old Testament terms here. Think um, the one Hebrew bumper sticker that we see all over town in Birmingham. I see it regularly. Shalom, right? What does it mean for there to be peace? It means human flourishing and the way in which God intended humanity to be. God has a very high view of humanity. And what peace is, is the act of human flourishing and light of the initiative of God to order our lives, to reconcile our lives to one another and to himself. So this this greeting that we tend to flit right over in our readings of any of Paul's letters is loaded theologically. Grace and peace to you. How? From our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other source in our lived world where grace and peace can be found other than um, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a totalizing vision of reality I mean, think about this. This is this is not a kind of se- separated or segregated off segment of our of our religious lives. Um, that is again a kind of instantiation of our own best instincts. This, this this is not what the apostle Paul is talking about. He's giving this grand view of all of reality. If you use sort of technical philosophical language. Paul is giving us in this first greeting here a metaphysic for everything. How do we make sense of reality and the world around us? All of it is made sense through the lens of the Lordship of Jesus Christ who's given us the grace of the forgiveness of sins that leads into genuine human flourishing. This is Gospel 101, and it's the means by which the whole world is viewed. So that's how Paul begins all of his letters. And then he moves into what is really one of my favorite 
my favorite bits of text that come out of Paul's letters. This is a very sort of tender moment here. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of mercies. And He's the God of all comfort. Now we could stop here and talk about this for a good bit. But again, it's my Old Testament side that forces me to think about how do I, how do I fill these words with substantial meaning? You know, th- this is part of the challenge of reading the Bible, frankly, as we think we know what words mean, but we have to be challenged about our assumption about what words mean on the substantial level. And that's what's going on here, I think. When, when Paul says that God is the God of all mercies and the God of all comfort, um, Handel's Messiah should start sort of playing in the background of your mind, right? Um, think about the great transition that happens in the book of Isaiah at Isaiah chapter 40 as you move from this, this sort of litany of judgment in the first 39 chapters into this overwhelming deluge of grace that you find in chapter 40. Remember this? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to her. Say to Jerusalem, that her sins have been paid for doublefold. Um, a voice cries in the wilderness, make straight a pathway for our God. I mean, this is, these are the kind of texts that just give it a few weeks. We're going to hear that here in the season of Advent read in our lecterns before, before the year is out. Isaiah chapter 40, the call and the recognition that God is a God of all comfort. And so what kind of comfort are we talking about here? We're talking about the unique comfort that comes from a recognition that God deals with us according to our human nature and does not let that be the final story of who we really are. God moves toward us in His grace and He forgives us our sins double-fold. That's where genuine comfort is to be found. So here he's talking about the God of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And how do we know that He's the God of all comfort? Because we know that in Jesus Christ He's made, he's made, all, things, he's made all things new. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And then listen to this sort of shared idea of affliction together. He comforts us in all of our affliction. He moves to us in our suffering. Suffering for the gospel's sake primarily, yes. But the suffering too that I think comes with what it means to be human in this world. He comforts us in our affliction, why? There's a purpose here. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God moves to us in our, in our own affliction. He, he comforts us in our affliction as He moves us toward a place of stability and rest. If I can use an analogy from the book of Psalms, um, you'll find this in the Lament Psalms, for example, where you have this, um, these expressions of disorientation from the psalmist. Have you forgotten me forever? Psalm 77. Have you forgotten what it is to actually love us? I mean, think about these very honest expressions that then ultimately move where in these psalms of complaint or these psalms of lamentation? They move toward the trust of um, in, in God's unfailing love. But I have trusted in your unfailing love. So here's a recognition that God moves to us in our affliction. 
He comforts us in our affliction. And why does He comfort us in our affliction? So that we can then be conduits of that self-same comfort to others. Um, thought about this with, um, uh, and I, with my, I, my students aren't here, so I can talk about them behind their back. Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting older, and they stay the same. And this, this has hit me recently. It's like there's just this, there they are, this sort of, I don't know, this abstract entity, my students. And they're always like 23 to 30, and unless, you know, unless they're mature, um, like Mr. Dennis. But they're, they're there. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting older. And as I get older, I, I, I hear their sermons and they're, and, and they're, my, our students are great. I mean, they're, they're good sermons, they're thoughtful. But every once in a while you're like, boy, there's certain, there's a certain kind of lack of gravity here with these things. Right. Um, and, and I, and I'm thinking, what, what's the problem with the lack of gravity here with some of these, these things? And, and the truth of it is what? They, they just haven't lived, right? They're 23 to 30. Um, they haven't, they haven't suffered yet. And many of them have, but there's something about the school of suffering that just comes with life that then prepares you to minister to others in, in ways that really you're not able to do absent that. You just have to live some. That's why, why you know, we, there, there's a certain valuing to the gray hair in the life of the church because there's a wisdom. Now, there, there can be old fools too, right? We all know that. Um, but there, there's a wisdom that kind of comes with, with living that provides a certain kind of standpoint. That so, so what's Paul giving us here? He's giving us this whole understanding of what it means to live in the community of faith, recognizing that we cannot transcend embodied experience and we cannot transcend the suffering that comes along with it. And when God meets you in your suffering... And he takes you through that dark night of the soul so that you move with the psalmist from disorientation to reorientation. And you can look back now on the far side of that experience and say how good God was to me in those moments. He didn't let me go. I thought he had let me go. I was, I, I was worried that I'd never be able to talk to him again. And yet here I am on the far side of that able to pray, able to worship, able to move forward by His grace. And here you are, and now God has given you what? The ministry of reconciliation and comfort to others who are in a similar in a similar place. This is the beauty of the community of faith ministering to itself. We, we need one another in that, in that regard. So here Paul says that you've been comforted so that you can comfort others. And then Paul has this really organic understanding of the nature of Christian existence in relationship to the risen Lord Jesus Himself. I, I don't even, I feel like there's just surface scratching on this, but there's, there's something about the communion of our life together as the people of God that's organically related to the risen Jesus Himself now. And, and I, I don't know the full depths of that, but we are the extension of Christ's presence and body in this world. It's remarkable. We are the extension of Christ's presence and body in this world. I mean, think about what, what Jesus says to the Apostle Paul on his, in his conversion moment. You remember this? Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? There's this, this link between what Paul was doing horizontally to the church is linked vertically in a way to the risen Lord that there's some sort of organic fittedness here. St. Augustine talked about, um, his technical term was totus Christus, or the total Christ. 
And that is Christ, our risen Lord, and the church as His body are organically related the one to another, and they're fitted in such a way. I mean, Paul even says in Colossians 1, it's one of those places in the Bible I almost wish it wasn't there. You have verses like that, and you're like, kind of wish that wasn't there in the Bible. But here's one that I've, I've struggled with. Paul says, I bear in my mark the bodies of Jesus and continue his own atoning work in the world. I mean, Paul's speaking about his own suffering as the extension of Christ's work on the cross in the world. It's, it's actually kind of unnerving to think about the very real and powerful role that the church plays as a living testimony and witness to Christ's lordship in the world. So here he says, we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. And listen to where Paul goes with this. So that we too can share abundantly in his comfort. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And here's a Greek word that many of you probably have heard multiple times. Sharing in affliction and sharing in comfort is the, is the term koinonia. There's a fellowship here among the people of God where we share in a certain kind of shared affliction in this world, knowing that this world is not our home. But there's a shared comfort in recognizing that the hope of endurance, the hope of perseverance, the hope of holding on to the gospel truths themselves, even in the midst of the dark nights of our reality, is that we have a comfort that's waiting for us there and then in the future. And what's Paul's, Paul's wording here? It's a hope that's assured See, we don't, we speak of hope, I'm done. We speak of hope this way. I lost my keys, I hope I can find them. And what's the, what's the unstated part of that? Well, there's the real possibility I might not find those keys, right? That's not the way in which Paul talks about hope. For Paul, hope is an assured confidence in the saving promises of God. And in the affliction of Christian existence, Paul wants us to know that we have a hope and the comfort that God gives us in His Son. So Lord, as we uh, enter into 2 Corinthians together, I pray that You'll let this epistle um, do its work on us. Let it draw us into um, the mystery of Your body, the mystery, Lord, of the communion of the saints, the mystery, Lord, that our own life together as the community of faith is organically linked to You, Jesus, in Your risen body and in Your ascended status as our Lord. And let us enter into that in this season of Advent, Lord, as we want to hold fast to the assured confidence that we have in the promises that you have given us in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.